still child flows pretty seamlessly out of gentlemen. Mm-hmm. We've all talked about how much these feel like a pair of songs that go together. For you guys, what what creates that sense of them belonging back to back? Yeah, I was thinking a lot about that question as I was reviewing for this recording session. And man, there's a lot to it. There's this beautiful, perfect musical flow between the two. And I don't have the words for it. So, Stephen, I'm excited sure. to hear your yeah. thoughts. But in a sense, it's almost an extended bridge of gentlemen you know like it's an it's not an outro but it's mm-hmm. it, like that it just feels like more of that song and there's some really interesting stuff that they did in the production of these two songs to make that happen i think both the writing of it and just the way it was recorded that it, it truly just feels like one set and in fact all of the songs between a and b feel very much like a suite of songs the way like circa totally different genre and period, but Abbey Road has a suite of like five songs that are all relatively short, like under three minutes, usually under two minutes that just flow into each other. And so it's kind of almost this continuation, almost symphonic experience in that in-between section. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And the, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. And, and the, (laughs) the tone of be still child feels like a very dramatic shift in a way. Right. Because you it slows down, you know, you have this kind of droning background, uh, you know, vocal um, Oz, yeah. and, and the guitar is so dissonant that, yeah, it's it's kind of in a way, even though they flow into each other, it it is in a, in it's always been for me a little bit of a jarring transition every time it goes from gentlemen into He's still child. Totally. Yeah. It's it's that's why like the first time. Gosh, more than the first time for a long time listening to this record, I didn't pay attention to what song I was listening to. I just listened to all of it. Yeah. And that transition, it just feels like this, like you're getting slapped in the face, but it's still the same song. Like the jarringness just feels like an interesting decision mm-hmm. like and here's this part of the song without looking at the notes on a page it's hard to describe why yeah. that's happening well let me tell you why that's <laughs> happening <laughs> kind, sir the opening and the closing of gentlemen are based on that resolution mm-hmm. which is an a with a d sharp over it tritone yep. which is this really dissonant interval that resolves out to a perfect fifth with an A and an E. The opening of Be Still Child is. It's a tritone ah. with a C yeah. and an F sharp resolving out to a C and a G. So we have. That pair. So they both start with the same basic musical gesture, just at a, a different tempo and in a different key. Now, when you get the ending of, of Gentlemen. into the beginning of be still child it's it feels it's this flowing gesture but it's but it's jarring because it's all kinds of dissonance playing off each other yeah right but it's all kind of speaking the same language it's just it's yes. just moving somewhere so yep. what i said last time on gentlemen was that 
this interval that we have is the first note of an A minor triad paired against the middle note of a B major triad. Interesting. And that resolves. At the beginning of B still child, we have the middle note of an A minor triad with the highest note of a B major. So it's like you're moving up with those two chords, that A minor and that B major still working against each other, but just like ratcheting up the energy to a higher level. So that A to B clash is still happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just continuing on in the next song. Yeah, wow. Hmm. Yeah. And those fit so well into kind of the genre-bending quality that we've been talking about from day one on this album. Mm-hmm. Um, that intense heaviness, because of that slow plotting tempo mm-hmm. at yep. the start. Well, yeah. slow and plotting might not be the perfect analogy, but that's fine. It compared to Gentlemen, yeah, yep. it is slow and plotting, and it—I don't know—it just creates this this sludge to it, yes, this, yes. this intensity to it, yes, yeah. And that C to F sharp tritone, which may be a little sludgier in a, in a lower register, although my, my nice little, you know, electric piano doesn't quite do it justice. <laughs> um, it stands in this song as, as a kind of unresolved question. So mm. Mm. even though the opening has that, it, it just kind of keeps asking it. Whereas like, so, so in Gentlemen, you get that gesture, which outlines, that's an A minor chord. So like it confirms like what chord you're on, what key you're in. Right. This song doesn't have that. Be Still Child is just, there is no, mm, yeah. like that doesn't happen. We just, we just get this thing kind of laid bare. And then whenever the first verse starts, the music shifts completely and it just sort of ignores that that happened. Yeah. But then at every break in the song, that sound comes back. Right, right, right. It's just sort of this like just like this punch of a question that's still waiting for an answer. So let's talk about verse one and see kind of what what's happening lyrically. I'll talk about the music a little bit later. But what's what's going on in the way this this verse starts? Well, so I, you know, in in kind of thinking about the song this week, it seems pretty clear to me that the kind of straightforward uh, meaning of the song or the straightforward theme uh, or story of the song is kind of just continuing with this sort of missionary relationship motif yep. that we've seen, right? You know, so so the... The first verse is full of a lot of metaphorical sort of figurative language. Mm-hmm. I see this as saying the son being the woman in the relationship mm. who, to use the cliche, right, the light of his life. And the reason why I think that, right, is because the child in Be Still Child, I think, is her, which, yes. you know, there, there's a very sort of paternalizing tone here in this song which interestingly 
before I really dove into this, I, I was thinking to myself, okay, we're halfway through the record. I don't know how well this sort of theory of the record that we've been building about the narrative structure is going to hold up in the back half. Like, is it going to start to sag? Like, I felt like in Gentlemen, we maybe were having a more, not a ton of trouble, but like a little more trouble than we'd had in the first act, right, of sort of piecing the mm -hmm. story yeah. together. We we're yeah. kind of trying to figure out like, oh, well, when is this happening and what... But then when I looked at this, I was like, okay, I, I actually think this fits really well because yes. he's – the narrator is paternalizing the uh, the woman in this relationship who, you know, they're, they're breaking up. And that to me makes sense as happening at the beginning of the story. And then when you get to the ghost, which is toward the end of the story, he is the one being paternalized, Right. Um, yeah. by the voice of his mm. father by you know it but that is the point as we had been saying in the ghost in nice and blue he's starting to wrestle with this breakup and his own self-worth and possibly moving from the aesthetic to the ethical life yeah um or at least he thinks he right is. <laughs> you know it, i mean yeah it's not i don't think it's it's fully resolved as we said Definitely. but here you get this very firm sort of what to me is the immaturity, right, of the aesthetic person or even pre-aesthetic person, I don't know, right, who yeah, is sure. um, who's really uh, trapped in this ultimately, I think, kind of damaging and unhealthy way of thinking about another yeah. person. So, yeah, so that's how I see verse one, right? I said my goodbyes to the sun, my little one so far away, and how strange, how small we must become, yet as familiar as yesterday. You know, I I see that as perhaps, like, I, I don't think that there is necessarily some sort of deeper symbolic meaning to draw out of that last pair of lines. I think it's the narrator's way of saying that a breakup, a relationship after it's broken up is, mm -hmm. is weird, <laughs> that we are strangers, we are small to each other, right? That's kind of how mm -hmm. I see that. And yet we are familiar to one another. Like we are, the memory is as familiar as yesterday or something like that. So that's my um, take on the, on the first verse. No, that's that's great. First two lines, I'm totally with you. The sun and my little one are the woman. Mm -hmm. Definitely with you there. And so far away. My only shift in the reading is to kind of go back to really the, the top of the album, you know, Let Us Die and the poem that's alluding to. Mm. The familiarity that's being implied there. I think those last two lines could have something to do with how strange, how small we must become in order to embrace something higher than us. Mm. Like, I have to become less the center of the universe and more a part of a greater whole. And yet so familiar is yesterday. That, that yeah, I, I definitely see your reading as probably the stronger, more more definite reading. But there's there's something to this 
how strange, how small we must become, yet as familiar mm. as yesterday. Even the way Aaron is yell-talking those lines, yeah. compared to where it goes in this song, the absolute intensity, the thrashing of his voice later yeah. on, to, to me, there's... I don't know. It There's almost a resolution to it. Like, there's almost a false um, acceptance to this situation. Like, there often is at the beginning of a breakup. Like, oh, yeah, this was – it's okay that this happened. And then as you stew on it, <laughs> it gets worse. It becomes a festering yeah. wound as we saw in Act 1 or 3, however you want to well, take and, it. Well, and I think that yeah. it, it festers in – in this song it just toward toward the end yes um i you know I, I think that the um the evangelical missionary language is very strong uh in at the end of verse two in verse and two and in the and, outro uh, yeah and in the yeah, outro yeah yep. yeah So I'm I'm really just here to talk about tritone resolutions today, but I, I do want to throw in a, a word for Dante because I've I've, I've invoked him before, I, and I have a, I have a different a different suggestion for a way that this first verse could be read. Okay, if awesome. you don't put the son and little one as um as a pair, but if it's I said my goodbyes to the son, and then it's sort of an aside, my little one, like he's addressing it to her. So far away. So, so the the full statement, if you take out the address, is I said my goodbyes to the sun. So far away. So in okay in, in Dante's universe, and this is really I think uh, okay. in the medieval conception in general. Yeah. But the way it comes across is that the prima mobile, right? The like the the force that moved the rest of the universe is at the outermost circle of everything, and this is where all light and life and goodness comes from God down towards the other lower layers. That's the biggest space. It's also the brightest space. And so how strange and small we must become makes sense geographically in the medieval universe to come down closer and closer to the center, which is also closer to the pit of hell and to right. you know, wow, where Satan yeah. is in the very center. So it's like he's addressing her as a, as a little one, which is you know infantilizing in its own sense, but also addressing her as a little one in a universe that conceives bigness as being closer to God and smallness as being closer to hell mm. yeah. um, is interesting. And to say that, you know, I, I said my goodbyes to the sun. It's like, I've come all this way down to be in this relationship with you. And here we are, like, how strange, how small. We're in this, in this sort of, you know, space that he has demeaned himself to be in this yeah. relationship. super helpful because the thing that especially in gentlemen but even in this song and and joel i tend to agree with you this song more definitively fits into the narrative arc that we've been seeing from the start but in gentlemen it's like is this before the relationship started is it after it ended is it somewhere in the middle it's, there's there's lines as we talked about last time that are ambiguous as to that right. point and Stephen, what you just put in there helps kind of reconcile that both of your readings have helped me kind of reconcile. This is probably post relationship, mm -hmm. not during the relationship. However, the bringing yourself down to be in it 
could be a I am still in this thing and the break hasn't happened yet. Yeah. And I'm, I think I'm not sure. Nick, last time you you talked about how you could read the whole second half of this album from A onwards as as the narrator's recollection. So it's still yes. kind of telling the story in linear order. It's like, yes. like we catch we catch the actual end of the relationship in real time. And then from here on out, really from gentlemen on out, we're sort of like experiencing him remembering it right. in, in a somewhat linear sequence. Right. Yeah. And that that would work here. Yeah. Too, I, yeah. Yeah. We yeah. yeah we were saying that the very beginning of Gentlemen, we never met you and I. We were always inside that that could be. And, and I do think in light of Be Still Child, this is the best reading that that it is post breakup. And he is recalling or thinking about the relationship yep. like we never met. We were never connected in the way that we should have been in order for the relationship to work that. that yeah, the gentleman, I think, in terms of the narrative we're we're trying to the story we're trying to tell makes the most sense as a recollection. Mm-hmm. And that does fit, I think, best with what is happening in Be Still Child. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And with with both of your kind of realizations through your readings, I'm I'm there with you. It is simultaneously both because it's a recollection. Mm-hmm. Like it is it is post breakup and during the actual relationship. Uh, wow. So here's what's going on with the music. After we get out of this, that sort of gesture over and over again, it just jumps ship and something like that is happening in, in the bass and lower guitars. I it's, yep. It seems like an almost random rhythmic pattern. I haven't transcribed it to see exactly where, but it's, it's those three notes together. <laughs> Same time in the... In the upper guitars. <laughs> so we get this cluster of pitches here. This kind of ugly thing, which also has this in that chord itself, there's another tritone. It's it's treated in a different way though. It's it's seems sort of softer, and of course I'm playing the keyboard here, but even in the guitars it doesn't strike with the same pungency as right here we guess right part of it is that it has that extra note down in the bottom so that's uh, it's a d natural f natural b natural are the three notes i'm playing and it does form i mean if you spell it a different way it's it's a it's a b diminished chord which is a perfectly normal chord to play it would show up like in the key of c it's it's a it's a diatonic chord, but we just had a C and an F sharp. It's ambiguous at this point is what I'm saying. Like yeah. we, don't, we still, we haven't had that confirmation. We didn't get that. That tells us, okay, okay, we're definitely in C minor. We just don't know what key we're in. We don't really have enough information yet. Although so far, everything I'm playing on the keyboard is are white notes. So C major is kind of possible. Nothing about this feels like calm and resolved and major at all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, it's very uncomfortable. And that's the whole verse. Like it just hangs out in that space. Wow. And there's there's different ways that that could resolve. So this this tritone 
Like that feels like, oh, we're at home. That's just going from the actual chords that are in this song to a C major chord. But we never get mm. that. Like it just never, it never hits that like happy, mm-hmm. satisfied place. So, um, and then at the end of the verse, we just get that again, that sort of musical question posed just, and it doesn't even resolve out. It doesn't do that. It just hangs out there. So I had a half thought floating yeah. in my brain and what you just said helps resolve yeah. it. So the music and yeah. the and the lyrical content of this blanket statement about this album, I can't believe this was their first album for how freaking <laughs> mature yeah. the use of yeah. music and lyrics, although the lyrics are at times infantilizing and potentially misogynistic, Sure. I, I, by design, like I think that's a, co- a a negative comment on the narrator of this. So it, sure, I'm not calling yeah. the band misogynistic to be clear. Right. But that question mark at the end of this helps bolster the ambiguity of it being a recollection. Mm, like yeah. th- there's an unresolved quality to why Aaron, the narrator, is reflecting on this stuff. Yeah. He isn't coming to a conclusion, <clears throat> even though some of these statements feel like conclusions. Oh, yeah. man. Right. Well, and, yeah, you know, and you, the tone of his voice matters, as you mentioned. Like, he comes completely unhinged at the end of this thing. But right now, like, the way he delivers a line, like, yet as familiar as yesterday, almost feels sort of, like, rehearsed and, like, like this is his speech that he's prepared to give her. And so here he's just, like, makes this statement as confidently as he possibly can, to which either this is the look on her face... Or that's like his feeling trying to remember that moment of like, was yep. that what the right thing to say? Like, oh. <laughs> which, oh my God, how did I not think of this? Okay, so the color, I couldn't, I, I try, but I can't remember the color of your eyes, just the shape of your dress. What's yeah. the first line of verse two? Right. The bluest, the bluest yeah. iris I'd ever seen. <laughs> yeah. We actually, we did, we did <sighs> mention that. We did mention that at the end of Gentlemen. We did. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I, I really love this idea of the kind of unresolved nature of the music because yeah. it, then it does resolve in some way, right? Stephen, when, when he gets to, you wanted to be found and him screaming that, and then it gets, goes into, don't be afraid of him. All of a sudden, the song takes a totally different turn, and it's no longer this dissonant, um, mysterious kind of questioning, unresolved sound. It now, all of a sudden, the music matches the confidence of the lyrics, and, and yes, this, yeah. and this sort of, I, I, it's not really a realization. It's almost like a falling back into that which is comfortable yep. for the narrator, right? This, this, you know, she's disappeared. She's vanished like a dream, sinking back into the ground, like this very uncomfortable position for the narrator to be in. And then he comes to this, his own sort of explicit questioning, you know, maybe I'm ashamed and maybe I wept real tears, but maybe she was hiding because she wanted to be found. You wanted to be found. You wanted to be found. And it gets into what, and I I know, you know, there's a few different ways for us to read that you wanted to be found. One way, which I think is perhaps the most uncharitable reading, is that (laughs) this is the kind of attitude often that American evangelicals 
take toward non-Christians, especially non-Christians that they know, non-Christians that they care about. There's a kind of, I'll call it a fantasy, right, that yep. uh, that atheists and other non-Christians secretly want to become Christians, that they are searching that they i mean this is the you know the i think you know uh uh one of the reasons why atheists took over the tolkien quote not all who wander are lost right because yeah, yeah. Uh, as a response to this kind of thing right that that not everyone who's wandering who's not a christian is uh you know a, a sheep in need of rescuing but yes. but this you wanted to be found you wanted to be found very much rings to me it makes me recall so many conversations that i had with friends when i was in high school who were thinking this way and you know encouragement from youth pastors to go out and try to evangelize our non-christian friends at public school and and uh you know bring them to fun events at youth group like that because secretly they are missing something from their life and yeah. they desperately want to be found and the reason why they're so antagonistic right because she is antagonistic toward him right we we find this out i mean we we already know it right because we know what happens at the end and we know the the conversations, so it goes, it's the devil, right? Exactly. Yeah. So we know that she's antagonistic toward towards this idea, and that would make sense, right? That that he is the narrator, sort of coming to this pretty well trod, well worn sort of American evangelical kind of uh, yeah. way of thinking about it. Well, and to interject, because I, I know you have some other readings of this that w as well that I want to hear. But um, so the you wanted to be found American evangelical point that you're making, there's a psychological and cultural studies concept called worldview defense, which has to do with my worldview, in a sense, is all that I know. And so if something else, another worldview doesn't fit into it, you have these different ways of reacting to it. Mm. Some of which are things like forcing it into assimilation. This turns out to be things like cultural appropriation, you know, like making dream catchers if you're not a, mm -hmm. a First Nation or indigenous person, mm -hmm. as an example. If you're making dream catchers, folks, and you aren't of those cultures, stop it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or learn more about what the thing is that you're making anyway. Yeah. Um, but for so, for example, it's like, of course you wanted to be found. I cannot conceive that you would want anything else because my worldview is such that I was a sheep who needed to be led. And now I have been, let me open the light to you. And we yeah. see this. I think the most, like one of the most heinous examples of this is just the old, uh, you know, the billboards like Jesus is your savior. And okay. Now that you know who that is, yep. you have to fall in line or you will be damned. Yeah. That whole, if you're ignorant of salvation, you won't be damned. But if you are aware of it and don't choose it, that, <laughs> oof, anyway. Yeah. And so, I think we kind of get that a little bit in the rage of this album. That's why. Well, I, I think yeah. even just in this verse itself, after the line, the bluest iris I'd ever seen, fi finally we have an acknowledgement of, of her eye color. Yeah, yeah right. We've been waiting that for a while. The line sinking back into the ground, you know, and, and we've also like I've brought up Dante, we've brought up the, the Orpheus myth, 
So this sinking back into the ground to me feels like we're back in Orpheus territory yep. again. But I like the way that these lines are mirrored. So so singing. So she's singing now. Maybe I'm ashamed and maybe I wept real tears. This to me feels like an authentic quote from a relationship dynamic like this, mm-hmm. where it's like she's like trying to to get on his level and talk his language. Like, okay, well, maybe maybe if you're saying that, like, I should be ashamed of my sinful life or whatever, mm-hmm. like maybe maybe I am. Okay, maybe I actually did cry because I felt really bad about something I did. And then and then he just jumps in. It's like she has like these two half formed thoughts. And using the same sentence structure rather than letting her finish her thought. But maybe she was hiding. Like that maybe <laughs> is in the same spot in the sentence. Like, I've got this other theory about what she was really yeah. experiencing. Yep. Right. Maybe I'm ashamed. Maybe I wept real tears. Well, maybe she was hiding because she wanted to be found. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And in this in the moment of sinking, like this is like the image we get is somehow her sinking into the ground. This is a very dying, descending to hell kind of an image where she has something to say or even something to sing. And he still interrupts it with this other line. And there's nothing profound to what I'm about to say, but I do think it's interesting that so Iris is both part of the eye and a flower and there are blue irises. Mm -hmm. So the vanishing like a dream and sinking back into the ground. Once irises die off in the season, uh, they still have their they're the they're the plants that have they're called swords, the fronds that stick up and and If those are well-maintained, those things stand up for a long time. But the actual flower stem goes away into, like, nothing. Hmm. And so I think it's really interesting, this, like, this Orpheus comparison, Vanishing Like a Dream, really plays into that as well for yeah. me. But this, it's, they're kind of fleeting flowers. So, so yeah. if we're going to bring the floral imagery in, which I think is valid considering... Me I mean, when they, when they would have performed this live, they would have had flowers strapped to their microphones. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And just a, another interesting point, and someone will correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure the only way that irises flower is if their root tuber is slightly exposed to the air. So you can't have that be entirely. Some of the roots have to be exposed, which is super interesting. So, like, yeah. they want to be found in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm reaching too far wow. there, but yeah. No, I love it. Yeah. Well, no, I a I don't have any clue how to how plants work or how to keep them alive. I've tried and failed many times. Yeah, uh, and Nick, you have very beautiful plants thriving at your house. <laughs> thriving um, is a strong word. But. Yeah, and at the time that this album was being produced, as far as I understand it, Aaron was working for a florist shop. Like he would have mm. been surrounded by this mm. stuff, and so that I don't think that's a reach at all. I think it's a very sensible reading. So, Stephen, what happens musically um, with the You Wanted to Be Found and then into the outro? The short, straightforward answer is a total non sequitur. <laughs> it's, it's a weird break. It's like this thought occurs to him and all of a sudden the music just takes off and like he's entered into this unconscious space where he's he's lost interest in trying to answer that question that yeah. keeps coming up up until that point. Total it, frenzy. Yeah. 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 But man. The key that the total frenzy lands in, I think, is really significant. And I'm going to say what it is, and then I'm going to backtrack, and it's going to get a little bit nutty, and we're going to talk about Mozart. Um, yes. So <laughs> here we go. So what happens on that you wanted to be found? There's a lot of this. 
over and over again. So the two gestures we get towards the end of the song there, you know, maybe she was hiding because she wanted to be found. You wanted to be found. Um, That kind of thing, which sounds dopey on the keyboard here. We're just Uh, at a baseball game. It's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That's a, a, a D, a C, and an F. Two of those two pitches, the the D and the F, we've already heard. It's those two notes, but instead of that one, we get, which is still not resolved to a chord, but it's, it's two shared notes from that gesture we've been hearing already. And then what we get after that is... which is just D and F. So we get these different complexes of sound that are sort of like eventually pared down to the barest bones of just these two notes, D natural and F natural, which on their own don't form a triad. It's two notes out of what could be one of two triads, either a D minor, which is D, F, A, or a B flat major, if you start the lower. So we have either D, B flat D F. So depending on which direction you mm. interpret those, we're either moving towards B flat or moving towards D minor. Which it so happens are the two key areas that define the rest of this album from here until the end of the last track. Um, wow. There's this really, really strong decision moment in this song, even though the lyrics are relatively straightforward compared to some other things in the album. Even though musically it's it's short, it's a little bit repetitive. To me, this is a crucial point. And this like this is a, a crisis moment, right? Where like yes. in crisis something it, everything dies or it like it tr- transforms into something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of the musical narrative, because so far we've had a lot of stuff going on with A and with B in various incarnations that I've talked about ad nauseum already. Now we have this this moment where when he loses himself he tends towards these two notes and i want to talk about those two notes so before i can talk about why d minor is significant or why b flat is significant i need to talk about mozart and to talk about mozart i need to talk about kierkegaard and i promise this is all going to make sense by the end (laughs) i love it so this whole time we've been buckle up (laughs) yeah we've been assuming foolhardily or not that this album has something to do with with soren kierkegaard's either or which is subtitled a fragment of life and features two characters referred to as a and b a representing the aesthetic life b representing the ethical life that's been our whole sort of background schema for how we've interpreted this record so far. There's this really long chapter that I'm sure for uh, plenty of people is just insufferable in the first half of Kierkegaard's Either Or, (laughs) uh, called The Immediate Stages of the Erotic, uh, in which he talks about why Mozart is, is the greatest of all artists in any medium, and specifically his opera Don Giovanni is the greatest work of art that the human race has ever produced. Um, (laughs) He goes to great lengths to make this case, And then he explains what the title actually means, the immediate stages of the erotic. So in that chapter for Kierkegaard, he sets up three characters from three Mozart operas as representing three, what he calls stages of the erotic. This is within the frame of an aesthetic life. There's these phases that, uh, that a person can go through 
presumably a male person. I can't imagine this <laughs> applying in a similar way for women, but well, I don't need to belabor the point. Kierkegaard does it for me. So the first character <laughs> that he that he lines up is this guy named Carabino from The Marriage of Figaro. Carabino's mm. is a young character. He's like a is like probably a young teenage boy. He's a, he's a page. He works in the service of somebody who's much more important. The Marriage of Figaro has all sorts of weird sexual energy going on. There's somebody <laughs> wanting to get married. There's like an important person in town who wants to like sleep with this woman before she can get married. A la like the beginning of Braveheart, similar kind of a, a, a scenario there. Yeah. Uh, Carabino is just, he's, he's just trying to figure life out. He's young. He doesn't know what's going on. His sort of signature aria and, and so this is what Kierkegaard sets up as the first stage of the erotic is is Carabino as the character. So he says, I no longer know what I want. What do I do? One minute I'm on fire. The next I'm frozen. Every woman changes my color and makes me blush. Every woman makes my heart beat faster. I speak of love awake. I speak of love in my dreams. Like this is it's just like teenage, you know, hormonal anxiety. <laughs> it's like this is this is Carabino's character. But the way that he's portrayed is very emasculated in the opera. He gets put into women's clothing in three or four different scenes where like they're trying to hide him from being found out. And eventually he has to like escape through window. So he doesn't like get to duel anybody. He has to run away in a dress. And like that's that's kind of his character. So he's just interested in women in general, but has no thought that anything is going to happen really he's just desirous at the very front edge of this so right. Kierkegaard says this is the first stage of the erotic Carabino's music I'm going to play a few seconds of it I, it bears no resemblance to what's happening in this track at all and I don't think that that character bears any resemblance to where the narrator of A to B life is but here's just here's what that sounds like so it's a pants roll. It's a it's a woman playing the part. It's a soprano dressed like a little boy who's running around on the stage, also then dressing in dresses. There's all sorts of, you know, the way things go yeah. on stage. So so Kierkegaard sets that up. Then he moves on and says, okay, the next phase in, in someone pursuing the aesthetic life, the next phase of the erotic that they would enter into, is, he, he relates to the character Papageno from The Magic Flute. Um, this, is a, this is a later opera by Mozart. It has a lot of Masonic imagery. Some people think that's the whole point. Some people think that's overplayed. <laughs> but there's this character who's kind of a supporting role, and, and he's named Papageno. And when, you, when we're introduced to him, he's walking around with a, with a birdcage uh, trying to catch birds which he makes a straightforward analogy that this is like chasing women. He's like looking around for any woman that he can get. The bird catcher, I am indeed always happy. I'm the bird catcher. I'm well known to the old and young throughout the land. How to uh, get around the bird decoys and be understood on the fife. And then he plays this flute line. And that's his signature. It's just this little ascending G major figure. That's Papageno's theme. Um, I'm going to play a little bit of that and then explain what happens between his little fife bits. Okay, so you heard that? Yeah. Yes. That's his yeah. theme. But what happens between each of those things is... Oh, it's a C F sharp tritone, the same interval that we have here in <laughs> Be Still Child. 
Oh, it's, wow. So it's that sound of unresolve. It happens to be the exact same two pitches that we have in this song. And I 100% do not believe that, you know, Mike Weiss was sitting around listening to the magic flute and being, man, what's what's a really great <laughs> aria to base the intro to this song on? Let's do Papageno's song where he talks about catching birds. That's going to be that's going to be the sound that everyone is going to latch on to here. This is just a happy accident. But but the way it resolves, I think, is directly relevant to, to the way the song feels. Because we have this unresolved question over and over again. Yeah. Which could very nicely just go... Right. It could resolve, which is exactly what happens in Mozart here. What it resolves to is a G major chord. That's that's the natural place that this sound wants to go. Mm-hmm. So, Papageno represents the second stage of the erotic. He has these momentary unresolved moments, but then they resolve nicely to, to G major. And in fact, the last little bit of, of his aria reads like this. If all the girls were mine, then I dutifully trade for some sugar. The one that I liked best, to her I would immediately give the sugar. So he catches all these birds, all these women. Then he gives them all up, except for one. He trades them all for sugar, for something that's worthwhile to a bird, I guess. You probably shouldn't feed birds sugar, but whatever. <laughs> uh, well, well <laughs> some, some want sugar. Hummingbirds and Orioles. There you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, he trades all of these birds for some sugar. Then to her, I would immediately give the sugar. And if she kissed me tenderly, then she would be my wife and I her husband. She would fall asleep by my side. I would rock her to sleep like a child. That's Papageno's mm, aria. Oh and so he wants, you know, he's looking for women in general, but if he finds the right one, then he's going to give up everything else. And then he's going to marry her and he's going to rock her to sleep like a child. That's the second stage of the erotic. This is where I think Aaron's character is. Yeah. Uh, in this point in the narrative. Wow. Dang. The third stage of the erotic is Don Giovanni. <laughs> That's the sound of that opera beginning. It's just a big, giant, whop-you-over-the-head D minor chord. A little bit later in the overture, you get that D minor sound continuing, but you get these really eerie tritones where you keep picking a G sharp above the D. So I'm going to play a little, this is another later clip from the overture, and just listen for that sound. That, that tritone comes back again. So here, here it is a little bit later in the Don Giovanni Overture. Yeah. So it's emphatically the same kind of gesture that we've gotten in Gentleman and in Be Still Child. But now in the key mm. of D minor, which is is very strongly tied, like in, I don't know, for other people. For me, like if somebody asked me, oh, it's like, what's a, an important, like famous piece of music in D minor? Giovanni is the only thing that comes to mind. I'm, there, I'm sure there are other like, important <laughs> D minor concertos and symphonies and whatever. But 
most of the opera doesn't carry on in that key. It, a lot of it actually is sort of like lighthearted and fun sounding, even though it's about this sort of legendary, you know, womanizing figure where he's conquering all these women. And at least in the, the, the libretto um, that, that Mozart was working with, he talks about how he's, he's had this sexual conquest with a thousand and three women in Spain. And there's a whole song about like counting up all a thousand and three of them. In the aesthetic life, the way that Kierkegaard's laying it out, that's the next step past this sort of Papageno-like life where you're kind of like looking around for women, but eventually you're going to settle on one and lavish all your gifts on her and call her a child. Then, <laughs> But if you continue down this road, eventually you you turn into this. And, and the way that Kierkegaard talks about Giovanni as a character is as this almost like elemental force. And he calls him something like, you know, like the demonic sensual. And he sets it off against Faust being like the demonic spiritual. And mm. it's, it's there's all sorts of layers that are going on and I've already talked way too long about this <laughs> key change. But um but D minor is significant because if Kierkegaard has anything to do with this album, then 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 Giovanni has something to do with this album and D minor really, really matters. And so what happens when when the narrator forgets himself and he keeps asking this question, which very readily resolves into the G major of his actual present state on this on these phases of, of the erotic as he's living the aesthetic life. When he loses himself, what he falls into is D minor, which is tending towards this third stage. And the end of it, what happens in the last scene of Giovanni is this D minor, almost note for note, the same music as the overture, comes back and without getting into the whole plot of the opera, Giovanni is eventually dragged down into hell himself. <laughs> and that's the resolution over the top of this D minor music that we hear introduced at the beginning. Wow. Wow. Which, I mean... I'm not done yet, oh. but please, <laughs> no. someone else talk. <laughs> I'm not done yet. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, I, I I think that... Well, I think this is a good point to, to just bring up the context of the outro lyrically. Mm. There's a note in Lyric Genius or whatever it's called that... That this is a reference to A Prayer for Owen Meany, which is a, a novel by John Irving. Everyone should read that book. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I have not read it. I don't know. Oh. what I, I am very familiar with John Irving, but I this is, you know, one novel that I've I have not read. But I think that the more obvious reference is to Psalm 46, uh, which is mm. also where the title of the song comes from, right? This uh, admonishment, and I, I do think it is an admonishment uh, to, meaning an instruction, right? Um, to uh, be still. Um, that's where this comes from. Uh, Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. I, yeah, I uh, am, I'm feeling a lot of feelings about this, if I'm, if I'm being honest, uh, because I, I think that yeah. what is happening at the end here 
captures something that I, I don't think is reflective about Aaron at all. Like knowing what we know about Aaron, um, I, I think it's it's perhaps in some ways uh, I would be curious, and and you know maybe this is in all the clever words on pages or somewhere else, but um, I I think many of us who grew up in evangelical environments have experienced something like this where and it, it it might take me a little uh, a minute here to articulate what it is i'm sensing from this but yeah it, i guess the short way of putting it is it is a sort of paternalistic a kind of talking down to that is couched as a kind of or contextualized as a sort of piece of, I guess, spiritual advice or um, some sort of edification when in fact it is the opposite. And this is, I think, I mean, for me, it's a very, it brings up very painful memories of experiencing mm. this in the church growing up, you know, where a pastor or some other leader is quoting scripture at you in a way that is on the surface intended to be instructive, intended to be sort of, you know, spiritually edifying, as I said, but but is actually a way of, I guess you could say, consolidating power or some, yeah, so, sure. something like that, right? So, I mean, the Psalm 46 is a psalm that is about it's it the central theme is the lord as refuge right so i'm going to read the the whole psalm here so that we can get a sense of kind of the context i guess of of the outro god is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble therefore we will not fear though the earth should change though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the whole habitation of the Most High. God is, the, is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations are in an uproar. The kingdoms totter. He, he utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. So this admonishment, don't be afraid of him, to me is, uh, I think, understood, can, can very easily be understood in the context of this psalm, which is saying God is the protector of Israel, right? God is the refuge. Yeah. God's voice melts the earth, <laughs> right? Um, it, I mean, there's, there's a lot of very, very strong imagery here that is basically saying the world could be crumbling around you and God will protect you as long as you be still and know that I am God, right? So it's 
troubling to me, I guess, right? And and, and maybe in a way that's intentional. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess that the intentionality is sort of beside the point. What I really want to, how I read this, right, is there's this switch from the confusion of the loss of this relationship to this yeah. kind of very misogynistic, evangelical misogynistic switch to, no, she was hiding because she wanted to be found, right? That's what's happening here. So now I'm going to preach to you, right? Don't be afraid of him. Don't be afraid of him. Don't be afraid of him. Be still child right the, yeah. the child isn't said there right at the end yeah. um but it, but yeah that but it's in the title yeah it, yeah <laughs> in, in the, the title, title of course um yeah, yeah so that that's and my little one implies it too yeah right right and and so that's my reading of it and again that we might yeah. find that uncharitable but i i think that it's very likely that I, as we've mentioned before elsewhere on the podcast you know this is it is the world that aaron and a lot of the other band members were living in. And so, yeah. you know, it's it's not surprising to me that something like this could come out, right, in some way. And again, I don't think that that is reflective of who Aaron is at all, right? That he would be that kind of person, no. right, to, to suddenly make it about him and then turn and, and preach, right, in this very sort of condescending, paternalistic way. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to you guys. I think maybe from two different directions, you can read or try to read sort of his internal motivation. So like, okay, this is Mm -hmm. the language he's using. This is the kind of relationship dynamic that that's producing. But why, why does he feel that way? Why does he feel like he needs to jump into that mode at this particular moment in the story? Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I can't recall if we talked about this at all, but because this is act one, Mm -hmm. but then we, imposed the it's act one but a reflection upon the past rather than being actually like real time we're witnessing the break to like the real time stuff already happened in act yeah. three um and so because of the fact like he still has some of this unbridled um un- under processed uh dissatisfaction with how it ended i guess so he's yeah. he's looking for rationalizations wherever he can find them i guess is my point but, but in a way i think it does whatever reflection is happening here, it comes before the ghost because there's this interesting juxtaposition of him kind of speaking in this infantilizing way to her calling her child, right? My little one. Um, And then that gets turned on him in the ghost where it's his father saying, you know, calling him boy and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and I think that that, I think in some ways it doesn't, it doesn't, maybe doesn't matter because going beyond our sort of the simple reading of, Oh, a is sort of like this vortex into the past. I mean, there's a way that you could actually read the song sort of internally as this kind of like glitching in and out of present past. Oh yeah. Right. So that you actually, 
it's really almost impossible to, or you can make the case for any number of combinations sure. yeah. so, of readings. So for example, an alternate reading of the, the difference between him saying my little one and be mm-hmm. still child versus being called boy and the ghost is that he is called boy in the ghost move forward in time. Now we're in this moment of recollection and because he was called that, it's drawing his attention to this memory of referring to as mm. my little one. And he's seeing himself in a different light because of the way he felt when he was treated yeah. like a child. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, it, um, it, 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 literally, it's it's infinite. Like, I yeah. don't think we're gonna, there's not enough data to point to, yes, that actually did happen here. Like, is this a recapitulation of how he was? Like, if we want to put, let's put this in a year context for easy math. Sure. Like. Yep. They broke up in January and act three is happening in November or December. Like this is him remembering actual events, but there's little peaks into how he really is now. Mm. As we've, mm-hmm. we we kind of tease some of those yeah. out because some of the lines like anytime there's a quote, it's like, OK, we can assume that something that's closer to what actually happened, quote unquote, mm-hmm. versus I don't know. Is he thinking that? I guess the question is just what time is he screaming something like you wanted to be found or don't be afraid of him? Well, the other scriptural point of imagery that I think is is a valid reading, and I don't take anything away from from reading from that psalm, because that, that be still, definitely, that has to be where where that language is. Even it's a simple two words, but it's not a normal words that like you don't give right. that as a command yeah. to people on a regular basis. That's right. not in our lexicon, but that, that line, maybe she was hiding because she wanted to be found only again, you know, like mentioning Dante, it's like, I've mentioned the, mm, the Eden right. story on, mm. on this show already. And there is this moment of hiding from God in that after they've eaten the fruit, after they've, they've made this choice between a and B, they go and hide from God. And so somehow, you know, it doesn't line up, perfectly and i wouldn't expect it to with that story but if you just put yourself in that world then it's this interesting twist on it where now this sort of male figure is just shouting don't be afraid of him like well maybe she hid because she wanted to be found well maybe she's still scared even if she wants to be found don't be afraid of him don't be afraid of him don't be afraid of him like and Mm, so there's that reading you can put this in in the in the genesis story too Mm -hmm. And all of it, just from a lyrical delivery standpoint, and Nick, maybe you can speak to this since you mentioned the the tone earlier. Yeah. Like, it feels like some other moments in this album where yep. he just lands somewhere and can't stop saying the same words, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, the most obvious, partly because I'm staring at the page with it, is the end of the previous song, It'll Be All Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But we get it, yeah, we get that in... I was once the wine. We get it and put music, put music to our troubles. It's like the use of repeated lyrics is profound and it's not the same usage in every song. I think in this song more than any others, it's this, this self-righteousness to put it in another framing of what Joel, you were just talking about. The one thing I wanted to point out, at least in the notation I'm looking at is I won't read every line, but first two lines of the outro are don't be afraid of him. Then the third line is just don't be afraid. Him is mm-hmm. left off. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then that repeats. Yeah. Two uh, two of him, one off. Yeah. And the only reason I point that out is to say one is a specific admonishment of not being afraid of a particular being, him that is the Lord, and yeah. him is capitalized in the liner notes specifically. Yeah. So we know that is God. Yeah. 
And then don't be afraid of this situation is how I read the sure. one of it off. And and that's lovely is not the right term because I'm I totally read it in in the same ballpark as as Joel you were taking it of this misogynistic consolidation of power like not only do you need to have this this knowledge imparted upon you but because I'm further along in that journey you need to capitulate to me mm-hmm. the the one teaching you the one bringing you along I am your shepherd right for this moment yeah um and in a sense so it's don't be afraid of him that's that's an admonishment that there's some potential not beauty to it but some potential like it's okay i was afraid too once and now i'm not like you don't need to be afraid sure. but then this don't be afraid at all that the, it's strange how much these simple simple words can fill us with this this understanding of of wanting for control wanting for for maintaining this particular way of seeing the world again back to that worldview defense concept i brought up earlier just capitulate just capitulate to how i want you to see things and it'll be all right because because we're sort of trying to to find this balance between like the the narrator who's speaking these words as representative of a certain culture and a certain vocabulary and then like aaron weiss as the writer and deliverer of these lines yeah. And where's the overlap between those two? I think it's fine to just let this be a, a character, mm-hmm. um, definitely informed by real life experiences. But back again to to Kierkegaard and these these operatic characters that he brings in, he explicitly talks about in in this chapter that any of these personas, if you try to imagine them as real flesh and blood people, it becomes immediately comical and ridiculous. Yeah. Um, even Giovanni, who's this very imposing figure, if you imagine a man like sitting by the side of the road with his best pal slash slave or whatever, Leporello is this guy who has his list of a thousand and three women. And you imagine him like asking this guy, can you read off the names of all thousand and three of those women that I've slept with? Like <laughs> you, you're never going to believe that that's real. And also that's bizarre and ridiculous. Like, but in, in the opera, it feels really like looming and frightening, like <laughs> in in a different sort of a way. And and so this is almost like this idealized caricature of an evangelist in a relationship. And 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 to, to put a fine point on it, Kierkegaard talks about this in Mozart, that all these characters make sense because they're set to music, that the music somehow like smooths over the edges and makes this believable in this other space that's different than the real world we inhabit. If you stop and imagine a human being, let's say standing on the side of the road, you're walking down the sidewalk. And a guy is standing there shouting in this tone, don't be afraid of him. Don't be afraid of him. Don't be afraid. And you walk by. I'm going to say. 10 times out of 10 that you are going to suddenly be afraid or you're at least not going to not be afraid because of what he said. Like this tone of voice shouting these words is not going to reassure you that, oh, okay, I can relax now. I'm fine. (laughs) What? Yeah, you're absolutely right. In, In fact, the the other less biblical reading of this album as a whole having that kind of stalkerish mentality to it don't be afraid of him if we were to interpret him as anyone other than god whether that's (laughs) the narrator or someone else or whatever you're exactly right it's just this complete emotional release into something that doesn't make any freaking sense like yeah of course you're going to be afraid if someone is shouting at you like that's a terrifying <laughs> like that's a part of this album that'll wake you up if you were asleep yeah it, it, when when he starts <laughs> shouting oh man 
So I said I wasn't done, and I want to talk about this music some more because Good. we have these notes of D natural and F natural with all their potentiality. Now we've already heard them at the be- in the verses of this song paired with a B natural. This is this note that throughout we've been talking about is representing this turn towards the ethical. In this case, against the two notes that are sort of strongly associated with this third stage of the erotic or Giovanni or whatever, putting the ethical against that just creates an unresolved tension. In the same way that like, like that thing at the beginning of Gentleman does, mm-hmm. the ethical cannot abide this presence of this sort of Giovanni impulse or whatever. Okay. That's one option. By the end of this song, we get that figure, which uses two of the same notes, right? But in a sort of different way, and it kind of amps up the energy. But the place that that energy lands is just this alternation. Just between the D and the F, still just sort of potential waiting to be released. And that gesture sounds so exactly like another song that I want to play for you now and just listen to these clips back to back. Yep. <laughs> so, so that's, uh, that's of oh. course the opening to In Bloom by Nirvana off of Nevermind. And I would say this is, it's like, oh, it's, whatever. It's just a random drum lick, except A, it's its identical. Like, like it's this, it's di- different chords, but the the kind of texture and the rhythm and the, the place and the measure of the chords change, all of it is just spot on the exact same music as, as in Bloom, just with slightly different chords. And to triangulate this whole thing to justify my crazed rants about all the musical references me without you covered in bloom yeah like 10 years later they were they were asked to be a part of of a nevermind 20 year anniversary album and by the time they covered it they were in the sort of recording touring phase for it's all crazy and so the band sounded fundamentally different but i think if they had been asked to cover in bloom as for a 10 year anniversary album it would have sounded basically like the original because they were already living in that sound world I think it's also just interesting to remember that A to B Life came out just barely more than a decade after Nevermind. That seems wild that they're that close in time. But, you know, this episode's releasing in 2022. So if you're listening to this in 2022, imagine an album that came out in the fall of 2011. And that's how close, like, to make a musical reference to something in 2011 doesn't seem that long ago. That's the distance between the recording of this album and... And never mind. And so it makes sense that's still in their musical lexicon. But oh, what key is in Bloom in? I'm gonna play this again just because it's fun, and then I'm gonna explain something. So here we go. Here's the clip with this the opening of In Bloom and then this transitional moment in uh in Be Still Child. Here we go. So the two notes in the Me Without You are D and F. In Bloom is I think that's the opening. And then the verses do something different. I was going to mm-hmm. go on this. Like the verses, interestingly, the 
turnaround on In Bloom is always this B, A, then back to B flat. Nirvana's harmonic language is super weird to follow. It's all almost always power chords and it's and it's a lot of chromaticism and so that's a whole other topic for some other planet show whatever the simple fact <laughs> is that in bloom keeps coming back around to b flat whatever else you say about it as as a piece of music in bloom is definitely a song in b flat b flat shares that d and f note but just with this lower note below as i said before so these two notes, D and F, tend to either B flat, represented here by this in bloom riff that the band goes into, or this key that Giovanni represents at the same time. So there's these two different opposing forces that could go two different directions that are represented in this transition here. The interesting thing about in bloom as a reference, which I assume the band was familiar with and liked the song, otherwise why would they have recorded a cover of it later, Yep, is, is that B flat and D, as they're introduced as this combined pair of options where the musical narrative can go, In Bloom is this song, as much as any Nirvana lyrics are about anything, it seems <laughs> to be about this sort of perversion of relational energy. That's a super weird way to say it. Let me say it like this. It's Here's A, here's B, here's B flat. If A represents the aesthetic, B represents the ethical. B flat is this middle space. Yeah. It sits right in between them. And if the aesthetic is about like seeking sensual desire and the ethical is about settling down, getting married, like living according to principles and with commitment to another person. The opening line of In Bloom is sell the kids for food. <laughs> it's one of the most hideous lines that Kurt Cobain ever penned. Yep. And... And so it assumes that there are children that have come from this relationship. These two people are having a conversation and they're hungry and like, well, we, we can, I mean, they come back later in the song, you know, we can have some more is how verse two starts. They're so callous to their own children that they're willing to sell them off just to buy some food. So there's a kind of stability, if you want to call it that as a relationship, but it's a hideously warped stability. You can assume they're married. You can assume they're not. It doesn't matter, but they're committed to each other enough. They've had multiple children. And yet they're willing to just cast them off for their sensual desire. So this B-flat territory represented by In Bloom is this weird, ugly hybrid between A and B. It's this sort of unresolved space that is wow. neither one nor the other. And wow. so here at the end of the song, it's like this light comes on that this option of this other thing, if you want to call it some kind of a dialectic resolution, you can, whatever, but like... I could have A or B, or what if I just had something that was kind of in the middle? And so the sonic reference gives you what that ends up looking like down the road. Right. Um, but but as we're going to follow through the rest of this record, that B-flat option continues to to be presented to, to the narrator as, well, what if I could just resolve somewhere between the ethical and the aesthetic? What if I didn't have to choose?
Well, and that's somewhat played out with, especially Joel, what you were bringing up with this outro and you wanted to be found. That is, in a sense, a, a straddling between the aesthetic, like me growing up an atheist and now being a spiritually ambiguous person, I like to say, um, I often saw my hyper evangelical friends who I got along with about a lot of things, but then there was this part of their life that was like this. I was like, I didn't have this vocabulary at the time, but that felt aesthetic. It felt mm-hmm. like a thing to fall into a community and not actually believe any of it, or you believe it, but you believe it because someone else pulled you there rather than grappling it with yourself. And so that's exactly the type of evangelical situation in my worldview that this narrator is in. They're yeah. in that in-between space because they're being religious or ethical for the wrong reasons. And in a sense, not being ethical. Like, I don't think there's any ethical way to be misogynistic. And there's a certain level of misogyny here. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Oh my gosh. So I think threat is where this song lands at the end, but it's pointed in another direction. I think that, that our narrator feels threatened himself by the time this thing is over. Clearly. Yeah. Wow. Nice. And so this, the last thing that we hear is an extended guitar solo, not extended, but the guitar solo starts like this. Mike plays this descending chromatic gesture that we've already heard twice on this yep. record. In terms of the flow of the album, this is the third time we've heard it. It was already in The Ghost. It was already in Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt. Now, though, it is solidly in the key of D minor. Any other any other ideas we might have had about what this D and the F might have been leading to? Now we have this con- confirmation. In D minor, this is where we're going to stay. This is where it's going to end. This is the key of Giovanni, which has tied with it the third stage of the erotic, which is the, the natural end result of this aesthetic pursuit, according to this line of thought in Kierkegaard. It has this sort of descending, lamenting quality that we've talked about with some other musical gestures, but with a tempo, with the kind of guitar tone that Mike is using, with some little like bendy stuff, whether he's using a pedal or his hands to do this, I'm not sure. I think to me, both. Yeah, yeah. This moment feels mocking. It feels like laughter. Um, yeah. And so it's a sound we've heard before. In the terms of like narrative, maybe maybe you could say this is the first time this this riff shows up. But because it's in D minor, and because there's this moment of decision, I think, for this character, to me, it's almost like whatever forces are pulling him towards this D minor are sort of laughing at it and mocking at him that like he fell for the bait somehow. He fell into this moment of trying to like conquer and capture this woman, even if on spiritual terms, instead of like purely physical ones. And yet his fate is being pulled in the same direction. And in fact, the way that Giovanni ends is this chorus of demons, like like and it's staged different ways, but usually the stage opens up. There's like, either real flames or like stage flames that are coming and the choir comes in representing these beasts of hell that are now singing to him about being dragged down to his fate. Oh, Giovanni says, what unusual trembling is assaulting my spirit? Where do these whirlpools come from filled with fire and fear? And the choir of devils responds, this is nothing compared to your sins. Come, a much worse pain awaits you. And then he gets pulled down. I mean, maybe it's putting too fine a point on it to say that this this guitar solo is is the chorus of devils. But there's something about it that has this mocking quality. 
It's now in D minor. He sort of ended up in the place that he didn't want to go. And he was like, there's this flash of like possibility in this B flat sort of middle space between these lives. And yet the music just drags it into this third stage of the erotic. And now with this mocking sound at the end, it feels like he's gone somewhere he really doesn't want to be. And that's where the song ends. All I wanted to add about that guitar solo is that's just it sounds like a southern rock guitar solo. Leonard Skinner is, is is the <laughs> reference. Like there's something about it. And in that way, it also adds to that mocking quality because that just doesn't fit with the tonal space, i.e. the effects that are on the yeah. guitar sound different than the rest of the album. Yeah. It's, so it really sticks out. Mm-hmm. And there's 12 songs on the album, so there, the, the middle point is in between Gentlemen and this song, but this song feels like the pivot point for where things yeah. could be going on. Yeah. And that's such an interesting one. I think Gentlemen, Gentlemen doesn't really have any of this missionary relationship quality to it. It seems like we're dropped into the middle of like a, a of an unhealthy, unstable relationship, but it's one that yep. they're just like, they're trying to work out their issues. And then at the end of Gentleman, in the middle of this very like straightforwardly physical, sensual kind of relationship, he starts screaming, it'll be all right, it'll be all right, it'll be all right, it'll be all right. No, there's this realization. And then we move in to this song. It's like he's it's almost like he's seen this other pathway or he knows where the relationship is going. And his he now he feels convicted that he needs to push it in this direction. Yeah. And so this is this decision moment that like it becomes something other than a regular relationship here. Yep. No, and that that's a great point that there's essentially no um, religious juxtaposing in gentlemen. So clearly, then there's some offstage action going on, mm-hmm. like something else. Some other conversation has happened in between the narrative of gentlemen and the narrative of be still child, where we get to I said my goodbyes to the sun, my little one so far yeah. away. Yeah, into this frenzied. Don't be afraid of him. The problems that we're seeing in gentlemen are potentially superficial and or or they're not the deeply rooted problems. And then what we see in Be Still Child is, ah, we finally got to where the real crux of our problems are. It's it's this being pulled in multiple directions of the of the aesthetic or the hedonistic and the ethical, seemingly ethical. I I, I like putting that qualifier on it because, again, There's not much ethical about the direction he wants to go when he's being pulled religious towards a religious life. Let me just throw in one more word. I promise no more musical references, but but we talked several times today about the slow tempo and about how it feels like this like downturn in energy from gentlemen. And then like it ticks up again as soon as we know who our enemies are starts. Rather than reading it as a slowing down of the energy, think about it as a slowing down of time. If this is yes. a decision moment, those moments in life have this quality of like everything kind of goes into slow motion. And so it's almost like the same thing is happening out of the end of Gentleman. And we're just feeling this moment of decision for him. And then the don't be afraid of him when the music picks up so much. You imagine like a racing heart, like as he's like trying, like this is the best line that he's got is just to keep saying, don't be afraid of him. 
or if he's remembering this in the past, like re- recollecting on like how stupid was I to like say this line. And that's why he's repeating it over and over again. And his heart rate is increasing because he's like, feels so ashamed of it. However, you're going to read this thing. I think if you think of gentlemen and we know who our enemies are as being in real time and be still child as this frozen moment, reflection middle, moment, yeah, it helps with the speed. It totally does. Well, and all I was going to add, so the sludginess of it is always why it's been, if if not one of my favorites, it, it just felt, it, I have always connected it so much with Gentlemen that I've always loved this part of the album, mm-hmm. the direction of it. The sludginess of it, I totally get what you're saying. The slowing down of time rather than energy, that's it. That's it. I'm thinking of some of my favorite like doom sludge metal bands, like mm-hmm. a band called Vow. I often jokingly say their music is the music that the dinosaurs died to in Land Before Time or in uh, or in uh, Fantasia, you know, yeah. being stuck in the tar pits. Yeah, there's a lot of intensity. Yeah. It's so slow intensity, slow intensity, yeah. which in a sense helps the ratcheting up, because if we had gone from the intensity of gentlemen straight into we know who our enemies are, that would almost it, it wouldn't feel as genuine, the ratcheting up of those things. So, yeah. So this conversation about Be Still Child has completely changed the way that I understand this song. I feel like this track was in some ways a bit of a filler. I was kind of saying at the beginning of the episode, like sort of how dissonant, how kind of sludgy it feels, how droning those vocals are, the background vocals, right, over the over the verse. And even though, I mean, I agree that part of me, at least in the beginning, did sort of, if I wasn't paying attention, like I, I wouldn't hit, I wouldn't hear the transition right from Gentleman to yeah. this song. But I think that this, I wouldn't call it a throwaway track, but it, I don't think was one of my favorite tracks on the record. And now after this episode, I don't know. I think my view has completely changed of it. We covered so much ground in this episode compared to some of the other songs yeah, I don't know. I just, I feel like uh, it's a completely different song for me now. Sell the kids for food, weather changes, mood, spring is here again. Reproductive glands, we could have some more. Nature is a whole bruises on the fruit, tender age 